0: Hey guys welcome to another episode of true crimes and weird toms i'm ashley and i'm kim and today i'm gonna be talking about the michigan triangle a well triangular part of lake michigan where spooky stuff happens the michigan triangle is an area that spans from wisconsin To Ludington, Michigan, and then spans downwards to Benton Harbor, Michigan, thus creating a triangle. Well, I kind of guessed it would be a triangle. Yeah. Now, people compare this a lot, and it's probably where it's got its name from. uh, Compare it to the Bermuda Triangle. I'm shocked. Uh, Yeah, because much like the Bermuda Triangle, many strange things happen around it. We're talking shipwrecks, missing crews, missing people, a missing flot, a Stonehenge,
1: and even UFO sightings. A Stonehenge in the lake? Yes. Oh.
0: So it all basically starts at around 1679 with a ship called Le Griffon.
1: It's the Griffin. (laughs) 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 But it's French. It sounds fancier in French.
0: Yeah, it does, right? This is one of the earliest recorded mysterious shipwrecks in Lake Michigan's history. The ship itself belonged to LaSalle, who, if you took American history, was a French explorer who explored the Great Lakes, and he's more well-known for exploring
1: the Mississippi River. But you're not here to learn that. I mean, I wasn't in school to learn that either, it sounds like, because I don't remember him at all.
0: I remember the name, I just don't remember who he was. <laughs> They sailed to Mackinac Island to trade pelts with the local tribes, and the ship actually made it to the island perfectly fine. No issues. Now, this is where LaSalle got off the boat. He can't recount what happens afterwards. So, it was the trip back that caused trouble. It was said to have been located on the body of water now known as Green Bay when it just simply vanished. The boat, its six crew members, and... The entire load of fur that they had on the ship
1: i don't i don't know why but i i really like ghost ships and like disappearing ship stories right and there's gonna be a ton of them today they're so creepy i know
0: now some say that the ship was just lost in a storm because lake michigan is known for its storms but some people say that the ship was maybe taken over by fur traders that murdered the whole crew, stole the pelts, burned the ship down, which would make more sense considering you can't find the ship.
1: Yeah, don't you usually find, like, wreckage remains and stuff after a storm? Right. But I would also assume that
0: even if they did burn the ship down, there would be some kind of remains. I mean, somewhere, but less
1: of them probably. Yeah. Harder to find.
0: Now, LaSalle himself was convinced that the crew actually stole the goods and just sank the ship. However, no one ever found the ship. So maybe. Maybe. But no ship can't prove it. But like the crew members never showed back up. Like surely something would wash up. Now, since then, several sunken boats and ships in Lake Michigan have been thought to be the Griffin. But they've either been proven to be other ships or just can't positively be identified. So maybe, maybe it's been down there this whole time. And we just don't know because it's not like they have any kind of registration. It was the sixteen hundreds.
1: Yeah, and I mean whatever name was painted on it's probably long gone. Oh yeah, of course. So
0: I don't know. Strange, but is it strange
1: enough? No, not for me. Okay. Didn't
0: think so. Not you, Kim. <laughs> These progressively get weirder. So I'm hoping like by the end of the last story is gonna blow your mind. Fingers crossed. <laughs> So the next one is the Thomas Hume. Now, the Thomas Hume, and that's the name of the ship. That's actually a schooner, but it's the name of it. It was a schooner that carried lumber and other cargo across Lake Michigan. And on the day of its disappearance, was carrying seven crew members. Now, this boat regularly and successfully made trips across the lake all the time. So this was just like any other cargo drop. They offloaded its cargo and then turned around to return to Muskegon. Now, they were also returning with another ship from the same company, which is the Rouse Simmons. Now, it's in May. The weather's a little stormy. That's what happens. And the Rouse Simmons decided to turn back to Chicago just to wait out the storm. However, the Thomas Hume had not. After that, the ship and all of its crew members were never seen again. Now, seems pretty like
1: like a normal thing. It was a storm. The boat sank. The end. I mean, yeah, especially with the other ship turning around. Like, if it was that right, bad. Right. But when they went out to find the ship, there was no trace of a wreck.
0: There was no debris. No bodies. Nothing. This is in 1891. So, they were a little bit more well-equipped to find their boat. And it's like Michigan. Like, I know it's, it's a big body of water, but it's not like... It's not
1: endless.
0: Right. So, and it was so odd that there was no evidence of a wreckage or anything, that the owner of this boat, the owner of the company, honestly thought that they just repainted this boat and renamed it and just took off with the profit. So, like, even he was
1: convinced, like, this boat is gone. There's no way it sank. Like, it's got to be just gone. Right. Hmm.
0: Now, in 2006, which was 115 years later, a Recovery was actually doing a search for old Navy planes, old World War II Navy planes, in Lake Michigan and ran across a ship matching the dimensions of the Thomas Hume. Since it was in fresh water for a, over 100 years, it was found in an amazing shape. I mean, even the masts were still intact on the, on the boat. Wow. They, yeah. They found coins, they found tools, clothing, all of it was in still in fairly good shape for being underwater. But there's still no definitive proof that it's the Thomas Hume. But like, they're almost convinced that it is. They're trying to find the registration number to kind of match it. But they seem convinced that that's, that's the Thomas Hume. So it just sank. Maybe. This one was considered a victim of the Michigan Triangle. If this happens to be the boat, then it's, the case is solved. I
1: mean, is it really a victim of a triangle if they saw this big storm coming and they were just like, well, we're going to go anyway? Um, but where would the boat and the crew have gone? Underwater.
0: That's the the weird part, though. Like, there's no, there's got to be, like, debris and stuff, even if it sank. I mean, not if the whole thing's underwater now. (sighs) Maybe. But again, I'm telling you, it gets weirder. Okay. Now, the next, the next one is called the Rosabelle. Now, this was also a small schooner, and it was carrying lumber and was heading to Benton Harbor, which is part of the triangle, and it had 11 people on board. Now, this boat never made it to Benton Harbor. They did find this boat. Now, this wasn't an issue. However, they found it overturned, and it was floating in Lake Michigan, like as if it had collided with another ship. But none of the people were on board or found anywhere near it, and there were no other accidents that had been reported and no remains of any other ship that had been found. So, like, what could it have collided with? There was no other boats. Okay, that one's weird. Mm-hmm. Also, the weather wasn't bad that day, so no storms. I mean, people have accidents. Things happen. But, like, all of the normal things that would cause a ship to, like, overturn or anything, like, none none of that evidence was there. Crazy rogue tidal wave in a lake? <laughs> now, I will say, like, Michigan does have waves. How big they are, I don't know. I've never been there. Me either. But... I just want to throw this out there. The Rosabelle actually had been rebuilt after an earlier wreck in the 19th century that was eerily similar to the way it had crashed in 1921. So, I don't know. The ghost of its parts? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That's a story within a story. Right? Right? But I feel like it's it's weird. Like, didn't people weren't people really superstitious about boats and sailing anyway? Like, I mean, about certain things, but I think there were rules. Okay, that would make more sense, because I feel like if if people were that superstitious, like, why would they rebuild that from an earlier wreck? But again, I don't know. Now, this one happened on a boat, (laughs) but it was not a boat. This is about a man named Captain George R. Donner. In April of 1937, he was sailing the O.M. McFarland and he had actually successfully sailed it through like really dangerous icy waters and he got them on the path they need to be on. So he was really tired. He's like, look, I'm going to go to my cabin. I'm going to go rest. When we get close to port, come wake me up. Of course, part of their path was to cross over the triangle and make their way to Port Washington. When they arrive, they knock on the door as he requested to wake him up there was no answer the door was locked from the inside and so they finally just eventually tried to break the door down and the captain was nowhere to be found like completely disappeared Hmm. where he disappeared
1: to i don't know he was on a boat i mean there's really only one place you can disappear to from a boat (laughs) but how did you get out of your cabin like that surely someone would have seen you i don't know was it nighttime like was everyone
0: else asleep too I don't think so, because there were several people trying to open the door to the point that they had to break it down. But there was no explanation. There was no evidence of his disappearance. Like, nothing was weird. I don't know why he would have maybe flung himself off the boat if that was
1: even an option. Maybe he tripped and fell off the boat. But they saw him go in his cabin, like... And then it was locked from the inside, though, right? Yeah. So, I don't mm. know. And no, nope, um, It remains unsolved to this day. Maybe he was killed by one of the other crew members and then they locked the door to make it seem like he vanished. That's not a bad idea. I didn't think about that. That's all I got. It is weird. I'll give you that.
0: Thank you. That's all I ever wanted to hear. (laughs) (laughs) The next one that happened in June 1950, Northwest Airlines Flight 2501 was flying from New York City to Seattle. There were 58 passengers on board. And of course, they had to fly over the Michigan Triangle. And once they did that, the captain of the flight radios in a request to descend due to a severe electrical storm. Now, I don't know why, but permission was denied to descend. And just shortly after that, they lost sight of the plane on the radar completely. They were never able to make contact again. And the flight went missing. Well, they tried to land and they were like, nope, sorry. What? (laughs) I know. Like, there was a, a, a... to me, it felt like
1: a plausible reason to land. I mean, I can't fly a plane, but I would assume that <laughs> flying it through an electrical storm would be bad. Um, yeah, I would assume
0: so. But the, the flight goes missing. Now, as far as I'm
1: concerned, it crashed into a lightning storm. Right, that's what I'm thinking. I feel like you're about to tell me that's not what happened, though. Well, here's the thing. Of course, they search
0: for the plane. They drag the lake. But they find... No plane. Now, at the time, they found no bodies, but human remains did wash up to shore a few days later,
1: but they still never found the plane.
0: No wreckage,
1: no plane. Was it confirmed it was, you know, the people who were flying the planes?
0: That I couldn't find. It always just said human remains
1: washed up on the shore. Huh. But
0: considering what happened, it would make sense for it to be them. It's weird they never found the wreckage then. Right. You would think they'd find something, even just like metal pieces or something.
1: Well, they didn't find entire bodies though, right? They just found human remains. I wonder if it exploded. It's possible. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I've seen lightning strike a transformer on the... I mean, yeah, uh, you've al- got to think that lightning can do crazy things. I mean, who's to say it can't make yeah. a plane explode? But they would still find something like debris from that. There would be metal yeah, in the water, chunks, on the probably. land, around... Yeah, something. If it burned up the whole plane, it would have burned up the people, too.
0: Yeah. Hmm. And that I wonder if the human remains were found charred or something. I don't know. That's a a pretty good one, too. Yeah. Now, Cloth Custler actually has something to do with this. He is an author. He writes, like, adventure books. He funds a yearly search for the plane. I don't know how long this yearly fund has been going on, but every year they search for this plane, and they still have not found it to this day.
1: That's dedication. Right? Did he have some kind of connection to the plane or he just wants to know? No,
0: that was the only thing I could find. Like, I couldn't find a connection to it. But, like I said, he writes American adventure novels. So maybe it's just, it could be good publicity. Could be, yeah. And if he's got the money, why not? Mm hmm. A good triangle
1: story would not be a good triangle story without UFOs. I feel like, anyway. I feel like anytime there's some mystical triangle, there's got to be some aliens. Surely.
0: On the night of March 8th, 1994, there were several calls made to 911 in reference to strange sightings in the sky from South Ludington to the Indiana state line. So, like, there were hundreds of calls. It even showed up on a meteorologist radar. Wow. Yeah, so this is something a lot of people saw. According to the Detroit Free Press, hundreds of witnesses saw strange lights in the sky that night and they insisted that they were UFOs. In the article, Grand Haven resident Cindy Pravada remembers seeing, quote, four lights in the sky that looked like full moons over the tree line on her property. She says that one of these lights on the left moved to the highway and then came back, and then the one on the right blinked out, and then the other three disappeared quickly. Now, a lot of the other accounts that were called in were similar, but a meteorologist in Muskegon actually recorded echoes on his sonar around the same time the lights were seen. Now, he says that the objects moved erratically, And lasted for about 15 minutes. So they were like kind of moving around in weird places. And then they drifted slowly towards the Chicago side of Lake Michigan. And then just as quickly as it arrived, it disappeared. And nobody can explain it. Hmm. But everybody saw it.
1: Government testing some new stuff. Mm. Swamp gas. Probably swamp gas over the lake.
0: Yeah, it's always swamp gas.
1: Yeah, that one is pretty weird. I don't know about that one. See, that's what I thought. But UFO sightings are UFO sightings. You can take them or leave them.
0: Now, the next one I found pretty cool. In 2007, while scanning for shipwrecks in Lake Michigan, Professor Mark Hawley and his team of archaeologists came across a Stonehenge-like rock formation. It's located about 12 meters below the surface, and it spans about 40 feet in a circle formation. The coolest part of this is like one of the stones in this formation has a carving that's in the form of a mastodon. If this is actually a mastodon that they see, this could perhaps date the stone formation to at least over 10,000 years ago because mastodons died out over 10,000 years ago.
1: What is a mastodon?
0: That is my furry little elephant friend.
1: Like a woolly mammoth? Yeah, basically. Okay. Also... I have an important question. Yeah. How can they say that they've searched everywhere for these ships and planes when they didn't even find this giant thing until 2007? (laughs) (laughs) You can't tell me there's not a boat in a lake where they didn't even find a giant stonehenge until 2007.
0: Okay, so here's the thing. I don't know. Like, Lake Michigan is huge. And, okay, another really big thing to know about Lake Michigan is... These aren't the only shipwrecks. Like, planes and ships crash and sink all the time in there. And I think I read, and don't hold me to this, but I'm pretty sure I read in an article like 80,000-something shipwrecks since the 1800s. That's a lot. And when you look at a map, like, Lake Michigan doesn't seem that big,
1: but it's pretty huge. I mean, the not- point still stands, though. They can't say it's if- not in there if they haven't searched everywhere. <laughs>
0: Fair enough. Now, as far as this stone formation, they're still doing testing. They're trying to find out how old it is. But the actual location of the Stonehenge is still a secret because they want to keep tourists away from it. That's probably super smart. Yeah, not a terrible idea because I would be there. I'd learn to scuba dive for that. (laughs) Actually, yeah, that would be worth it. Okay, last but not least, and the entire reason I wrote this episode today is Stephen Kubaki. I was just going to do a story on him until I learned about where he disappeared. So, in February of 1978, 23-year-old Stephen Kabaki decided to go on a ski trip near Saugatok, Michigan, which is near the Triangle. Uh, He only meant to be gone for like one or two days, but essentially he just vanished into thin air. Part of what's weird is that Stephen was known to be an outdoorsman he had climbed mountains before he had even previously been skiing in this area before so this wasn't going to be like a new place this wasn't unusual for him like this is stuff he did he knows the terrain so why did he disappear on february 21st of 1978 snowmobilers came across his skis and backpack and notified the police and authorities immediately launched a search for steven now the only clues they could find were a 200-yard trail of footprints in the snow, going one way to the edge of Lake Michigan, and then they just ended. Investigators concluded that Stephen had walked to the lake, possibly fell in, or maybe just walked in and became trapped under some ice and drowned. Seems like it's all done and
1: done. Yeah, I actually watched a some kind of documentary thing about a, a guy that that happened to who worked in like a nature reserve.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that that stuff happens. Even if you, even if you know the terrain, even if you've been there and worked there or whatever, it happens. Mm Mm-hmm. But here's where it gets weird. On May 5th, 1979, this is a year after Stephen had gone missing, and assumed dead, Stephen Kabaki found himself in a grassy area in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, fully alive. What? Yeah, he was very much alive. Where had he been? Well... hang on (laughs) so Pittsfield, massachusetts is about 700 miles east from where he vanished but it's almost a straight line from where he vanished like if you look at it on a map it's about a straight line all the way across fortunately he was about 20 miles from his aunt's house in great barrington massachusetts and he went there and then was reunited with the rest of his family Stephen had no memory of the past year he didn't know what happened He doesn't know where he went. He didn't know what he'd been doing the whole time. He didn't even know how much time had passed until he saw a newspaper with a date on it. Now, a week later, he spoke with reporters and he told them that he found himself in that grassy area. He was wearing clothes he didn't recognize. He had a backpack with him that was filled with maps with things that he didn't understand, but that had suggested that he had been traveling to several different places Sacramento, San Francisco, Reno, Chicago, Utah. He also had $40 in cash, new glasses and sneakers, and a t-shirt from a marathon that had occurred in Wisconsin. So, like, I don't know, did he run a marathon and not remember? What? Yeah. He did claim to remember right up to his disappearance, though. He said that the last thing he remembered was feeling very cold and scared of being lost in the frozen darkness.
1: Well... Okay, I have some theories, but I'll let you finish telling me about it.
0: <laughs> I did have a theory myself. I assumed, okay, maybe there was stress at home, and he wanted to just leave, and that's what he did. But according to Steven, he claims to have been in a healthy frame of mind before his trip, and after he was found, he said his father was going to sign over a house to him, he had a job lined up, he didn't have any troubles in his love life. school was going great, like... Why would it, his point was why would I leave? Everything was pretty much set up for me. He also told reporters that he was going to go try to go back and retrace his steps but no one knows if he actually did or what he might have found because since then Stephen has refused to speak about the disappearance and a journalist actually tried to contact his ex-wife who also refused to talk about the disappearance. And
1: now he lives in the Pacific Northwest as a psychologist. Hmm. And that's it. That's, that's Stephen Kabaki. I wonder if he had some sort of break with reality, like a mental health thing. <sighs> but I a year know. long episode. That's a long time. And did just snap back out of it, though. Yeah. Maybe part of it was
0: because he was set to graduate that spring. Maybe it was just a, a thing of, oh, my God, I haven't done anything with my life. And now I'm going to have to go to work. I mean, I can get that the at The fact that he
1: refuses to talk about it. To me, feels like it was intentional and he's making up right. the whole I don't know where I was thing. Right. Because if they find out that maybe he just ran away, he would be in trouble. I, I don't mean, I don't know. I feel like he definitely knows what happened. I feel like there's no way he spent a full year wandering the country with no memory of it. But also, how did he survive? What money did he use? Did Did he ever use the money out of his bank account or... Because he live in, like, homeless.
0: It was 1978, so I'm sure cash was still the biggest form of currency.
1: And he could have just done odd jobs and got paid under the table. Yeah, that's true, too. I wonder why, if it ran through the media, like, I wonder why no one ever was like, hey, I know that guy. He seemed fine when he was here. Maybe it was, because here's the
0: thing. I didn't find, now, that he was in the news. I found a couple of, like, newspaper clippings from it, but, like, I don't know how popular this got. Maybe it
1: just... Maybe it stayed local. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Because this really wasn't... Ooh, the Michigan Triangle Man, you know? Like, this wasn't... This wasn't a big deal. It was just, hey, skier missing. Hey, skier returned. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. not very (laughs) exciting. But, I don't know, it's still a strange story. And a lot of people wonder... Maybe he did go back and retrace his steps and found something he didn't like. Oh. Maybe that's why he doesn't. That makes sense. Maybe that's why he doesn't talk about it. I don't know. But those are some crazy stories about the Michigan Triangle. (laughs) (laughs) Spooky. Spooky.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening. Like us on Facebook at True Crimes and Weird Times Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at True Crimes Weird Times. Email us your stories at true crimes weird Times at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Bye!